What major American city's name may have originally meant skunk to Native Americans? And what's the greatest number of balls ever juggled by one person? Burning questions we all <laughs> need the answers to. And we'll get the answers to those and other questions in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, this gave me a new perspective on one of my favorite cities in America. Okay. What major American city's name may have originally meant skunk to Native Americans? Well, I'm sure they're... And for good reason. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, skunks are still in that area. Really? Yeah. Well, can we narrow it? Is it out west? No, it's not out west. It's out east. It's not out east. It's in the Midwest. It's in the Midwest. (laughs) I'm running out of locations. I've given you all the clues I'm going to give you. What major American city's name may have originally meant skunk to Native Americans? I'll go with Chicago. That's exactly right. Yeah. In fact, Chicago is an anglicized version of several smelly names used by Native American tribes who either lived there or visited there. Yeah, some histories of Chicago have said the French explorers derived Chicago from a sloppy transliteration of Chicaqua, the Miami, Illinois word for smelly wild onions. (laughs) And then others say it was Chicagong, which is an Ojibwe word meaning skunk. Now, the interesting thing is the skunks are still very prevalent along the Chicago River. I didn't know that. but. They've lived there forever, and they still are there, and there's still stories of the animal wardens having to go out and trap these things because they show up in neighborhoods, but skunks have always lived along that river. Apparently, the whole area of Chicago is named after the skunk, according to Ojibwe preservation officer Edith Loesso. She recalls stories of her ancestors traveling from their homes in southwest Lake Superior to the smelly Chicago River each fall, right as the young skunks were setting out in search of new territory. (laughs) Skunks. I still love the city. That goes to Bob Freund. I want him to know (laughs) that his hometown's name means skunk. (laughs) Let's go on to important world questions. Okay, like? What's the greatest number of balls ever juggled by one person? (laughs) This takes me back to all those Ed Sullivan shows, watching those people like, juggling. Wow, well, what were their names? The Walendas. Walendas would juggle their bodies because they would always make those pyramids and things. All right, just take a... So I would say, you know, the most I could ever do would be four balls. I never did that, three at the most. And it didn't last long, I could tell you. So I'm going to say I will go up to 20 balls. And, of course, it depends on how big they are and everything else. Well, think of the physics. How could you do 20 balls? All right, well, tell me the answer. Tell me I'm wrong. You are wrong. Oh, how many? The all-time record is 11. 11 balls. Yeah. This guy in England in 2012 juggled 11 balls 23 consecutive times. Alex Barron on April 3rd, 2012 at the Rue Hampton Squash Club in London. At the Rue Hampton Squash Club. Yeah. Not a vaudeville theater or no, something like no. that. No, But think about the physics of trying to catch. They're pretty uniform-sized balls, and you couldn't possibly do 20, Bob. What well, size balls are they? I mean, I, they could be smaller balls. They could be, you know, super balls. They could be baseballs. They could be volleyballs. <sighs> Maybe next week's question. Okay. All right. All right. Guess what furry animal became one of the most desirable pelts for the fur trade? 
and by the 1920s, they were America's second most valuable fur export. Well, was it beaver? No. Fox? No. Is it something that lives in the water and comes out? No. Okay, like a muskrat or something? No. Oh, no, I don't know. Skunks. <laughs> Back to my, you know, <laughs> it's one of those rat holes you, you go yeah, down. You're, you got a theme. Okay, going now there. divorced from their pungent smell, people loved the rich, warm, beautiful coats that skunks made. They were likely the first mammals that trappers found when they reached the Chicago River in the 1600s, as I said. And skunks helped the city ride the fur trade to prosperity. In the 1920s, durable skunk pelts had become the second most valuable fur export in the Americas. Most people didn't know that because sellers marketed their pelts with names like Alaskan Sable or Black Marten. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. They all came out of Chicago, I assume. (laughs) Yeah. And then when the government started requiring accurate labels after World War II, the skunk's popularity disappeared because nobody wanted a skunk. Yeah. In 2010, private companies with wildlife removal permits removed 6,700 skunks from the Chicago area in one year alone. Wow. In 2017, they removed more than 14,000 skunks. So again, Chicago, stinky. I love Chicago, though. It's one of my favorite <laughs> cities. It really is. Okay. Here's that your kind of question, McBobber. What does the Q in Q-tips stand for? Oh, I saw that question, but I didn't read the answer. Damn. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I did, well, and I the, read the answer. Is it quality? Is that what it is? Why did Q-tip? you say that? Well, I just think of it being a quality tip. You know, they wanted to call it the quality tip. I forgot. You know, there were different companies making these. And so that's the answer? Yes. All right. It's uh, quality tips. It's a brand name as opposed to cotton swabs. So Q-tips was originally and is quality tips. I didn't know that. And it was invented in 1923 when Leo Gerstenzen, saw his wife stick bits of cotton on toothpicks to clean things like her ears oh or something. Oh dear, that yes. sounds dangerous. It does, it does. And you know, every box of cotton swabs will tell you don't use these to clean your ears. But, but do you know one person that doesn't clean their <laughs> ears with a Q-tip? Them. Of course. I know, of what course. else are you going to use? So he invented these in 19, what was the year? 23. Wow. And is there any other information on the company? Did it start a big empire I'm sure there him? is, but I don't have it, Bob. Okay. <laughs> so the it's funny. Quality tips, we have to abbreviate it. So it's Q-tips. Q-tips. It's just too much. <laughs> That's America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got a question for you. This is a cultural question. It goes back centuries. So I'm going to ask it of you. And I know, based on your vast background and your passion for history, that you will <laughs> like this question. Okay. The best man at a wedding yeah. originally accompanied the bride, not the groom. To the wedding. Oh, okay. Why? Oh, okay. Why was the best man yeah. originally part of the bride's wedding party? Well, um, I'm thinking here, what makes sense? I'm, I have no idea. Okay, this goes way, way back. Originally, the best man's job was to stay with the bride and protect her against other men who might want to capture her for themselves. Oh, my God. That's why he was the best man, because you could trust him. Oh, with your wife. Yes, with your potential wife. Yeah. In fact, there are tales of uh, warriors who wanted a bride of their own who set out with their own companions to seize the bride from her groom at a wedding. So it was for that reason that Scandinavians started the traditions of weddings at night. And behind the high altar of Swedish churches, lances with sockets for torches were available for the best man in their duty of detecting and repelling abductors. 
What kind of warriors? You mean Indian warriors or what? These are warriors up in Scandinavia. They didn't have Native Americans up there. Well, no, but I didn't know they had warriors they either. Had Scandinavians didn't have warriors? Ever heard of the... Vikings? Yes. I've heard of them. Okay, well, they're from that area. Okay, fine. Okay. Page two. <laughs> Page two. All right. Why is Friday the 13th considered to be bad luck? Hmm. And the 13, number 13, is considered bad luck because there's some buildings don't even have 13s on the doors or 13 floors. Skips from 12 to 14. That's right. You know why that is? No, I don't know. I got it all right here. All right, let's let's take a (laughs) listen to it. Friday the 13th? Okay, so here is the answer. Mm -hmm. The number 13 represents Judas. Oh, really? Oh, no kidding. The 13th to arrive at the Last Supper. Friday by itself is unlucky because it was the day of Christ's crucifixion. Years ago, the British set out to disprove these superstitions, and they named a new vessel HMS Friday, laid her keel on a Friday, and then sent her to sea on a Friday that fell on the 13th just to dispel the ridiculous uh, belief. And then guess what? The boat sank. It never was heard from again. Oh, no kidding. There were no survivors, no crew, no ship. They never saw it again. Oh, my goodness. It set sail. And so that that added to the folklore of Friday the 13th. I never heard the thing about Judas. Of course, Jesus and the 12 disciples, that's 13 right there. But Judas was the last to get there. So that's the 13th person. Oh, who knew? He so he was late for dinner, so he uh-huh. and he was out there making. Uh, I think he was doing other things too. Apparently, he was making a deal. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is a seventy fifth anniversary of World War Two mm-hmm. recently, and looking back on that, which of the Axis powers had more people under its thumb: Adolf Hitler in Europe, or Japan in Asia Pacific? Again, looking back on World War II, which of the Axis powers had more people under their thumb? Was it Adolf Hitler in Europe or Japan in Asia Pacific? I'd say Japan because there's all those islands. Well, and it's it's a vastly larger region, too. Yeah, at the zenith of its uh, imperial reach, Japan had 516 million people under its control, which is 20% of the world's population. Now, (laughs) because China, of course, was the first country that they basically went into, and that is a huge country, and was at that time, too. Now, Hitler had 360 million people under his control. That's about 14% of the world's population. But the Japanese waged war of uh, immense scope. You know, that exploded west from China to India, south to Indonesia, and then east to the Hawaiian Islands, and north to the Aleutians. So when you look at that on a map, that is a huge portion of the world. And all of those peoples were under the Japanese control. Huh. Okay. I got a question. Why do we say, bless you, after a sneeze? Oh, because that goes back to the plague days, I think. That was one of the signs of the plague, and people were worried that your your soul would fly away from your sneeze Uh because of your, you know, you have have the disease. Oh, my goodness, you're going to die. Yeah, McSmarty Pants. That's uh, pretty much it, but there's a little more to it. Okay. The ancient Greeks believed a blessing might prevent evil from entering your body while you sneezed because it was left in an unguarded state. What's left in an unguarded state? Your body. When you're sneezing, you haven't got control. Oh, I see you're vulnerable at yeah, that moment. Yeah, because you're not breathing and you're okay. stop. But our tradition comes from the Black Plague of 1665 when sneezing was believed to be one of the first symptoms of the disease. Infection meant certain death. And so the symptom was greeted with the prayer, God bless you which through time has been shortened to bless you. So uh, if you were sneezing back during the Black Plague, 
everybody was afraid. It's just like now when you go in the grocery store and start coughing or sneezing, people start looking at you. Oh, like you have COVID <laughs> or something. Yeah. Yeah. So it was no different back then. So bless you. May God bless you. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have a lighter question. Okay. Okay. When this product was introduced, a doctor warned that its use would exhaust the salivary glands and cause the intestines to stick together. <laughs> well, what product was Peanut it? Peanut butter. No, not peanut butter. Honey. That's a good one. Peanut butter is a great one because you would think, yeah, it's yeah. sticky and going down yeah. there, it's got to stick together. Honey? Nope. Okay. Hold on. Marshmallows? No. I don't know. Those are all excellent guesses, Thank Marcia. you, Bob. And Thank they you. are all wrong. wrong. Yeah, yes. All right. You love <laughs> Chewing it. gum. Chewing gum. Oh, yeah, sure. If you swallowed it. I used to worry about that when I was a kid. I, that was what your parents always yeah. told you. It's going to wrap yeah. around your stomach. and Yeah, that's it. You're going to die. But when chewing gum was introduced by William Finley Semple of Mount Vernon, Ohio in 1869, uh, this physician's warning was in a published article that that would exhaust the salivary glands and cause the intestines to stick together. Hmm. Okay, when was fingerprinting first used as a means of identifying people? That's another good question. <laughs> you, you're already identifying your questions as good questions. They're excellent questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when was fingerprinting first used? Oh, gosh. Um, well, it was uh, after Sherlock Holmes was just coming in, uh, the late 1800s. That's a very good guess. Again, it's wrong. But Sherlock... <laughs> It wasn't using it. It was just coming into No, he being. was talking about it, and that's because it was starting to be used. And, and J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI made it standard practice oh, in, yeah, in the 20s was, yeah, and 30s. That was... And that's when most people think it was instituted. But fingerprints were actually being used to identify people as early as 700 A.D. by the Chinese. Oh, yeah. They are were so advanced. They were advanced, weren't they? That's amazing. Okay, you ready for this? Okay. What is the oldest known instrument? I thought it was the uh, harp. No. The flute. Now, why did you say that? Well, because it's easy to make. It's a, you can hollow out a, you know, a stick or a rod and drill holes in it, and you could do that with a hand drill. So I would assume that would be one of the early instruments. Yes, it is. And check this. They found one in a Neanderthal cave that was dated between 43 and 82,000 years ago. Wow. Is that wow, something? Wow, that's amazing. In 1996, an excavation in northwest Slavonia uncovered a transverse flute made from the femur of a bear cub. Also I, came from an animal. Okay, yeah, gotcha. It was perforated with four round holes, and its shape and structure strongly suggested a wind instrument between 43 and 83,000 years old, making it the oldest musical instrument ever found. Well, you know, they found those ancient combs and those Egyptian tombs. They found kazoos there. They did no, not. No, they did not. <laughs> they didn't have wax paper yet. So Remember when you used to make those as a kid? That... That's pretty funny, Bob. Oh, I was just thinking about uh-huh. it. Okay. All right, I got another World War II question for you oh, as we're in the anniversary of World War II. Which theater was at war longer, Europe or Asia Pacific? Uh, Asia Pacific. Why would you say that? Because... The VJ Day came, comes later okay. than the other day. But the fighting actually started earlier, too, because uh, it began in 1937 when China mounted its resistance to the Japanese. Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, so mm-hmm. it was roughly two years longer, the Asia-Pacific War. So the answer is, you're right, Marsha. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was yes. you're absolutely right, Marsha. That's Thank the right you. answer. Well, Bob, you remember a, a week or so ago we talked about... Uh, 
how fast was the fastest baseball pitch ever recorded? Oh, yes. We had several different ones. I think the one I had was 127 miles per hour. That was one of the stories. There's others. Yeah, but that's the fastest recorded Uh to date. Well, you want to guess what the fastest tennis serve is? I bet it's 150 miles per hour. (gasps) What is it? 155. Really? Yeah. Oh, score one for the bobber. 2004. Andy Roddick, in a Davis Cup match against Russia, served one up at 155 miles 155 an hour. 155 miles per hour. You don't think of it, something like that coming that fast at you, until it hits you. <laughs> that would, then it hit me. It was fast. That's a, then it hit me. Well, it hit me. We should take a break now. So okay. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. <laughs> Oh, you sounded like you were tired. I wanted to be relaxing. Yeah, let's have a little pep here. We're back. You're listening to the off-ramp. And Marcia's feeling peppier now, right? Aren't you? <laughs> well, I'd have a quick question. As far as we know, how many libraries in the U.S. have their own streaming radio station? How many libraries in the U.S., public libraries, have their own streaming radio station? I know the answer to this, but you go want... <laughs> no, go ahead. It's our very own Cedarburg Public Library. Yes, it's... And thanks the... to that... We have listeners in places like France, where people from some little town in France tune in every week to hear our show. Yeah. And I say bonsoir <laughs> to Absolutely. our friends over in France. How cool is that? These people are very good listeners, because if they're listening to our show on the station, it runs in the evening on Sunday that actually runs on our internet radio station first, broadcast out of our Cedarburg library. And the people in France have to listen to that like around midnight in order yeah, to listen to our show. Yeah, that's even more incredible. But that's in the analytics. And as far as we know, Cedarburg Library is the only library in America that has a, a radio station streaming, and I'm proud to be part of it. Me too, me too. And like we said, we had those folks in France. We know that we have people listening in Germany, and then once it gets on the podcast platforms, it goes even farther. For instance, here's a shout-out to Debashish Ghosh, one of my former work colleagues who lives in India. He said that he listens to us, too. So, so we can say here at the little off-ramp that we are global. That's right. Yes. We need a big sign now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and we want to thank the Cedarburg Public Library and Jeff Messerman for putting us on the air. They run the show first, and then we put it on SoundCloud, and then it goes out to all the podcast, all the podcast platforms, uh, you know, like Apple and Spotify and Stitcher and uh, Google and Pandora and iHeartRadio. We're building a little audience, so we're having a good time with it. It's a lot of fun. You bet it is. Okay, Bob, what weighs more, a pound of gold or a pound of feathers? Well, I would think a pound of gold, but wait, wait a minute. A pound is a pound, so they're both the same. I said it too, but no, alas, nay. (laughs) Really? The answer is feather. Really? Yep. Gold is weighed in the Troy measurement system. So if you convert both to the same system, a uniform measuring, a pound of gold is approximately 373.24 grams, and a pound of feathers is approximately 453.59 grams. So that's a trick question. It is. So you're but, happy with that, I guess. All uh, right. Yeah, but it you know uncovers a long-held truth that a pound is a pound is a pound, but it's not. Well, it depends on the pound measurement system. Well. So that's a troy ounce is what you're going by there. Perhaps. Okay. All right. I've got another cultural question. What Christian gesture that we use today came not from the church, but from early prisons? What Christian gesture that we use today came not from the church, but from early prisons? Is it the Hail Mary through no, with the... Mm-mm. crossing, no. Yeah, no. the crossing. Um, 
I don't know. It's praying by joining hands. Oh, yeah? It's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible, and it didn't become part of the Christian tradition until around 800 years after Christ. It came out of the way prisoners' hands were shackled together. So the joining of hands became the symbol of submission, a symbol of man's servitude or total obedience to a divine power. Now, back in Jesus' time, the common method of praying in both Hebrew and Christian worship was to spread the arms and hands toward heaven in a great yeah, gesture. Yeah. That's the way you used to pray. Yeah. But this whole idea of the prayer with the praying hands came from prisons, and probably because of St. Paul. It may have been symbolic of St. Paul was in prison so many times. Anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. That could be. And speaking of culture. Yes. In the U.S. Yes. How long does the average marriage last? Oh, well, uh, the average marriage. You know, mm-hmm. this changes every once in a while, like yeah, every generation. Yeah, I have generation. a couple of different d- dates here. I would think that the it's average... It's gotten longer, by the way. So I'll say the average marriage lasts 45 years. Oh, God. Oh, you you poor, naive soul. That was what that <laughs> laugh was. Oh, you. you All c- right. They even had movies called The Seven-Year Itch, you know. So. That's the average length of a marriage? No, no, it's uh, it's oh. up to eight now, eight years. You're kidding. No, in 1950, it was the average marriage lasted seven years. And in 68, uh, marriage lasted five years. Good Lord. So it's actually gone up since uh, 68. So it's eight years now? Yeah. That's the average, average time of a marriage? Yeah, that's sort of sad, isn't it? But I, I love your optimism. Well, my first one didn't make it, I guess. So, uh. <laughs> Yeah. How long were you married in your first? Uh, six years. Well, see, isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How about that? Okay. All right. All right. Back in uh, 1349, King Edward III of England banned all sports in his country except one. He banned every sport in the country except one. Who? King Edward III of England, 1349. I know you were around then. You were. I wasn't paying a lot of attention okay. then. Okay, it was junior high. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what were the sports? I don't know. He banned everything but what? Croquet. No. He wanted to upgrade the skill of the peasantry for warfare. So he banned every sport in his country except archery. Archery. Oh, all right. Back in those days, it was basically bow and arrow for warfare. So yeah. this had a specific yeah. objective. It yeah. wasn't all distraction. It was to avoid distraction. Yeah, interesting. Also, what's interesting, Bob, Mm -hmm. is why do we and Marvin Gaye say, I heard it through the grapevine? So where does that expression come from? (laughs) I heard it through the grapevine. I would think of the jungle and I think of Tarzan, but that's probably not where grapevine... I don't know. What is the answer to that? Well, it comes from the Civil War. Oh, A colonel set up a crude telegraph line between Placerville and Virginia City by stringing wires from the trees. And the wires hung in loops like wild grapevines. And so the system was called the grapevine telegraph, or simply the grapevine. By the time the war news came through the wires, it was often outdated, misleading, or false. And so the expression, I heard it through the grapevine, soon came to describe any information obtained through gossip or rumor that was unreliable. So it's not necessarily reliable, but here's what I heard through the grapevine. Yeah. Yeah. See, I didn't know that. I always thought of heard it through the grapevine as being like an informal, unofficial yeah. type of communication. But this was actually the telegraph wires. Yeah. Huh. Well, but they weren't reliable. And by the time it got to where it was going, it uh, 
it wasn't very. What is that game we played? You whisper something and some. It was telephone. Yeah. Yeah, and where then, you would retell what the person told you and yeah. it would change as it went around the yeah, room. Yeah, after 10 people or something. That some. was a, a great thing to have kids do because it told you how easily it is for things to change. To be and, misunderstood and, and, and to change and gossip. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. What is one of the only cases in history in which a dead language has been resurrected and put to substantial use? Well, Latin was. It's never been put to substantial use, other than the scientific realm where you have genus and species and yeah. things like that. This was a dead language. This language totally died out. And then resurrected. Was brought back. All right, tell me. Hebrew. Hebrew, which for all practical purposes has been a dead language. It was for about 2,300 years. No be- kidding. I didn't know that. Yeah, before the Jews revived it in Israel as their common language. So they decided to resurrect it. Yeah. And that was their language. Yeah, it was probably only used in ceremonial purposes, but uh, yeah. That is very interesting. All right. What inventor, Bob, was so practical about solving a personal problem that he was satisfied with his invention and didn't even try to patent it so he could reap financial rewards? So he was satisfied with it as what it was. Yeah, I did that. Good. Did, there I it is. I didn't do it for money. I did it for convenience. It's a problem I've had, and now I don't have the problem Well, anymore. that was me. That was me. No, <laughs> I think we've all done things like that, like, I wonder if I could make money with yeah, this. Yeah, I'm always thinking of that. So but, how far back does this go? Well, 1700, 1787 to be precise. And it was an invention, and the inventor was so satisfied with it, he didn't care about making money with it. Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh, uh, now, I was thinking uh, about the, was it Walter Hunt invented the paperclip because he needed money, and he sold that for hardly anything, and that would have been a fortune. Uh-huh. So if this inventor's invention had been patented and he had basically taken credit for it, would he have become very wealthy? Oh, I would assume so. Okay, what was it? He was 26 years old. Okay. Name was Levi Hutchins. Levi Hutchins, and it, what did he invent? He got up late all the time. And it really bothered him, Bob. (laughs) And he wanted to wake up at 4 a.m. each day to get started in work. Okay. But he often slept past the time, which threw him off the rest of the day. So he created the alarm clock. Oh, no kidding. Yep. He constructed a gear device which would trip a bell when his clock struck four. He never tried to protect his invention because with it, he got what he wanted. <laughs> he got on time. He got he, up on time. That's right. He got to work. He wasn't interested in money. He was interested in not oversleeping. And he succeeded at that. Keep it simple, stupid. Right? Well, it sounds like almost like a Rube Goldberg thing, yeah. where a, a gear from his clock clicks something and hit a bell, and there you go. I'm awake. Yep, it's like, I don't know, cotton on the end of a toothpick. (laughs) But that guy made money. All right. All right, all right. You say you got something funny that we can uh, go out with, right? I'm just going to go out with a funny quote. Okay. By one of my favorite uh, writers, Nora Ephron. Okay. And she said, when your children are teenagers, it's important to have a dog so that someone in your house is happy to see you. (laughs) That's true, (laughs) especially when they're teenagers. Thank God they get better as time goes by. They become real people again. (laughs) And our kids are just the most wonderful joy of our lives these days, aren't they? Yes, they they are. All right. Well, we thank them. We thank you. And we thank everybody who helped to contribute to the program today. And Bob Freund, again, Chicago stinks. Did you know that? (laughs) No, no. it's, It's a wonderful place. All right. We'll be back again with more trivia next week. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Off-Ramp.
The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.